It was, uh, I was thinking of what to say this morning. Uh, it was 25 years ago, right? Was it summer? It was summer, and me and him get an argument about this. I had this guy walk in with a suit and tie on, but he says he did not have a suit and tie on, so getting past that. Uh, he sat here, and uh, we were done with prayer meeting in here, and I said, uh, I don't know, I don't remember how it went, except uh, I remember he wanted to come up here from Arizona. He lived in Glendale, which is what, Phoenix, and Joyce, and um, he, um, you know, when people just walk in, you wonder who they are, you know. And so I gave him a 1689 Confession of Faith, and I said, well, I'll just go home and read that and see what you think. And I think it was six weeks later. Did you fly up? I don't even remember. October, and he became our song leader, and uh, he would preach, and, and we have a mission church that started in Onega, and he went up there to preach, and we would sing, what, five songs in a row, no breathing between, and he would get on out of here and have to start church up there at 11.15, going to Onega on the Twirly Road, and I remember, I'm glad you made it there, I don't know if you were ever late, but you had to be. Anyway, and that's kind of how the church started. Eugene does a lot of devotionals, if you want, on his app. or Is that an app? I don't know. He sends devotionals. I told him he needs to print some of them because they're really good. And he's been leading the cantata here since he came in the, every year. Eastern Christmas. And he's a member of our association, of course. And uh, once you know, he's a brother in Christ. He loves Jesus. Uh, he preaches the Word of God. Can I have an amen if you know him? Um, I love to hear after his cantatas, his little sermonettes, and very good. And uh, he can think without notes. That's amazing. I don't like you very much. Anyway, but I love him, and he loves Jesus, and it's good to have good pastor friends that you can confide in and talk, and, uh, and I know he loves Jesus. And I want you to come up here and let me pray for you. Uh, and... Uh, as he preaches God's word. I told him about eight or ten years ago I wanted him to come up and preach for us. So I, I, I'm glad you're here. Okay. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for how wonderful you are. I thank you for Eugene and Joyce. I thank you for the uh, church established up there and uh, beacon in that little town that uh, he's faithful in populations going down but God your word is strong and does its work and I thank you for him I pray you'll bless him and his family and I pray as he preaches today God you open our hearts and convict us encourage us do what you will this is a time you brought us here for this season for this day for your glory and so we just praise you Lord and thank you for the preciousness of your word that we can look at and see that revelation of our risen Christ and all the suffering we go through in this world and all the things, may we just uh, look to you this day. And I pray you send your manifest presence here and your power. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. I, pray you. Preach. I love you. There's one. I like that Tony thinks I preach without notes. I may speak without notes on... Uh, after the cantata, but I certainly preach with them. <laughs> um, if you will uh, take your Bibles, please. Open them to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, 
Join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, if you would, please. Second Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings, which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us, in you also, helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us this day, and we pray, God, that as we consider your word, that you would open our hearts. I pray, God, that you would in this moment set me aside. Let nothing of me remain. Let your word come forth in power. I pray for your unction, God. I pray for your spirit to be upon me and upon the hearers. And I ask, God, that you would plant your word deep in us and let it bear fruit. God, let it bear fruit according to righteousness. Let it bear the fruit that will honor and glorify the risen Christ. We pray, God, that Jesus would be exalted in every heart, that he would be magnified, and that he would receive the full reward of his suffering. For it's in his precious and beautiful name we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. But I know that no matter where you are in life right now, you are facing an entire slew of things that only God can solve. The problem with that reality is that most of us live like we can solve them. Maybe we'll go so far as to acknowledge that God is our co-pilot on a bumper sticker. That only means you're sitting in the wrong seat. Now, that part of what I have to tell you is the easy part. Here's the rest. Whatever that problem is, whatever issue you face, whatever illness, whatever financial burden, whatever unique difficulty, whatever undue pressure at work, whatever marriage problem, whatever family issue, whatever rebellious child, you name it, God has brought it into your life for the singular purpose of teaching you that your human resources are entirely bankrupt and that only He can deliver you. 
Here's the truth that we get a fleeting glimpse of in the moment when we are converted and cry out mercy. The answer to all of life's problems is God. God in Jesus Christ is the meaning of life. He is the reason for life. He is the purpose for this life. And nothing else means anything. And I mean absolutely nothing. Which gives us the simple answer to the question that every good humanist asks. Why do bad things happen to good people? First, there are no good people, but let's be honest. That dodges the spirit of their very fair question. If God is God, then the shape of the world means one of three things. Either he's impotent, he's incompetent, or he is working out a plan that runs much deeper than we can understand. If God is God, there is no other option. Paul gives us the answer here, and spoiler alert, it's the last one. With this answer to the question given, that God is working out a plan deeper than anything we can comprehend, another question immediately surfaces. Can such a God be trusted? For often to us, his plans seem cruel. Paul gives us the answer to that as well. God himself undertakes to sustain us, to comfort us, and to redeem our very difficulties so that in the end, we give praise to God both in them and for them. It's a tall order, but my God is up to the challenge. So I want to look at this passage with you, and I want to think about these questions. I want to think about how it is that we can not only trust a God, but love a God who creates a world and intentionally brings it through his plan so that it looks like it looks today. Let let me just state something that we need to understand that often we forget. The world, in its entirety, exactly as it is right now, including whatever it is that you're facing, is exactly the way it is supposed to look at this moment. Okay? There is nothing in this world that is out of God's control. Nothing. That means the big stuff, and that means the smaller stuff. That means the stuff that is on the scale of the world, and the stuff that is on the scale of your life. It means the stuff that you know about, and the stuff that's going to hit you tomorrow. There is nothing in this all of creation, not just this world, but the entirety of the universe. Every created thing is doing exactly what God intended that it would do at this moment. There is not one rogue atom in all of creation. Not one. And Paul tells us that because of that, all of the praise belongs to God. Okay? So let's start with the assertion. God deserves your praise. In fact, let me go further than that. God doesn't just deserve your praise. He deserves all praise. Okay? He deserves to be praised for everything that is and for everything that is going on. It is something that belongs to him in a way that we do not fully appreciate. And Paul gives us some things to consider as he begins this letter to the church at Corinth. He's giving praise to God for some very specific things. 
And he starts off by saying, I want to give praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a formal title which belongs to God, it belongs to Christ, and it brings to mind the covenant relationship. It brings that into a full focus. Now, the covenant relationship is something that we need to at least briefly consider. It is the eternal covenant of grace. And let me just be really clear with you. You are not a part of it. Okay? The eternal covenant of grace is something that took place between God in eternity past. It is the covenant in which God the Father agreed to elect, to choose, to select to call a people, to say, these ones are going to be mine. Now, you need to understand, this is before you ever were. The scripture tells us that you were chosen in the beloved before the foundations of eternity. So before God ever said, let there be, he already knew exactly who he was going to save. It's his to choose. In that covenant of grace, Jesus Christ, God the Son, said, my part in this is to redeem them. I will give my life for them. I will fulfill the law and I will bear the price, fulfilling the wrath and the punishment which is due for their sin. And you say, wait a minute, nothing had happened yet. How is it that Jesus is prepared to die for sin that hasn't occurred? That's a really good question. And you need to think this through with me for just a moment. If this covenant of grace took place before the foundations of the universe, that means that even the fall is included in that truth that there is not one random rogue atom in all of creation. Not one. The fall was intended, beloved. Because for us... In the middle of what Paul is telling us here is this beautiful, glorious, powerful truth that the very best parts of God can only be known in a relationship that is brought on by redemption. You can't understand how good God's love is unless you understand it experientially. So Jesus' part in this covenant was to die for our sin To bear the wrath of God. And the third person of the Trinity also took part in this covenant and said, my part in this will be to actually call. To irresistibly draw those who you have chosen and you have died for. And then I will seal them so that every single one that you have purchased with your blood makes it unto the end. I want to point out again please notice that you are not involved in that covenant. Your will has nothing to do with it. Your choice isn't a consideration. Your choice becomes active when God gives you a new heart. And the first cry of a newly living heart is the cry for mercy. That's the evidence that you have been born again. When you suddenly realize my sin is the blackest thing imaginable and God is holy beyond all description and I need to be saved or I deserve the hell that I see yawning at my feet. You weren't a part of the covenant of grace, but you are the recipient who draws the benefit from the grace that made it. 
This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one who has ordained and ordered and is over all of these things. And he deserves praise for it. Amen? He deserves to be praised because every good thing that we have and every good thing that has been brought into our life and every good thing that has ever come your way has come your way because God, the Father of our Lord, made sure that it came your way. Now what I want to explore with you this day is an idea that is closely related to what I just said. And it is that if we are thinking about our lives and, and, and our experience in this life correctly, we're going to recognize the truth that not only did every good thing, every easy thing, every comfortable thing come from God, and it's good, and we thank Him for it, but that everything came from God. And that even the things that are difficult, and even the things that are hard, and even the things that we would really rather didn't happen are things that we are not only privileged but commanded to give him praise for. They're things that we are called and given this charge to recognize that God knows more than we do. And that he has ordered his creation in a specific and particular way to bring about an end and a purpose that he himself has ordained. And he's not going to miss not one speck of everything that he intended. He deserves praise for being the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Father of Christ's divine nature by eternal generation. And he is the Father of Christ's human nature by miraculous conception in the womb of the Virgin. And he is the father of Christ the God-man, our redeemer and the mediator of a new covenant. And through that mediator, he becomes our father. Because Jesus does not just redeem us to be friend. He redeems us to be child. He adopts us. So don't make the mistake of selling your relationship with him short. He is your father. And he is your father by adoption through your elder brother, Christ. It is his work. And for that work, he deserves praise. But he also deserves praise because Paul points out that he is also the father of mercies. Right? This idea of being the father of mercies is something that is woven throughout Scripture. His tender mercies are renewed through us daily, right? Lamentations 3.22 says, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We have a hymn written around that song. It's a magnificent hymn. But I want to point out to you that it takes place in the latter half of the book of Lamentations, which is written by the prophet Jeremiah as he watched Jerusalem burn. And still he said, great is your faithfulness, God. Your mercies to us are renewed every day. I think Jeremiah understood what I'm trying to communicate to you. That God was God. And that there was nothing, even the destruction of the holy city, that was outside the realm of his authority and control. 
His mercies are renewed to us every morning. And His mercies are multitudinous. Psalm 69, 16 says, Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. And His mercies are rooted and based in His word, in His promises. They're rooted and based in His communication of those promises to us. Psalm 119 verse 77 says, Let your tender mercies come to me that I may live. Your law is my delight. I love that the connection between God's mercy and God's law is right there. Because so many times we want to think about God's mercies, we want to think about God's goodness, we want to think about God's blessings in the context of our own vain imaginations. We think that somehow we're qualified to determine what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong. We think that somehow we have the power or the ability or the obligation to determine that what God has ordained is incorrect or or it ought to be some other way. Let me ask this random question. Does prayer change things? The only thing it changes is us. It changes our perspective. It changes our minds. It changes us to be in conformity to the will of God which has been laid down from eternity. It is a vital part of the Christian life. It is something that God has given to us to allow us to participate in the work of the gospel. It is something that God has given to us to allow us to communicate with Him. But its primary purpose is not to change God's mind about anything. But it does change us. It alters us. Because here's the truth. You cannot be in the presence of God and be unchanged. So if you've prayed and never been altered by it at all, I'd have to ask the question, to whom have you been praying? With whom have you been communing? Because it is an absolute impossibility to be unchanged by being in the presence of God. See, his law reveals to us his mercies. Psalm 119, 156 says, Great are your tender mercies, O Lord, so revive me according to your judgments. When your heart is not right and you go to the Lord in prayer and his mercy is lavished on you, what happens is that you become revived. You become made new again. You become poured into his presence and his presence becomes poured into you. It opens you to be in the presence of God. These are his mercies. He deserves praise for these mercies. His mercies are the flavor of the attitude that he holds towards his children always, even when his children are being chastised. Isaiah 54, starting at verse 7, says, For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is because our God delights in mercy. Micah chapter 7 verse 18 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? For he does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in mercy.
So he deserves praise for being the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He deserves praise for being the God of all mercies. But he also deserves praise for being the God of all comfort. Because he is the comforter that he has given. John chapter 15 verse 26 says, When the Helper comes whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Do you notice the triune God given in the promise of the Spirit? Sent from the Father, testifying of Christ. He is the Spirit. And and the personal attributes of God comfort us in the abundance of His strength and power. We know Psalm 23. You'll hear it all the time. What does verse 4 say? Somebody's going to count. I'll help you out. Verse 4 says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Right? The power of God, the strength of God, the fact that God is God is our comfort in the darkest moments of our lives. The fact that God himself is exactly who he declares he is, is that hope on which everything that we are and everything that we do rests. Beloved, hear me. I beg you, hear me. If God is not who he says he is, the next Sunday morning, you need to find something else to do. Okay? If God is not exactly who he says he is in his word, then we are wasting our time and wasting our lives. But the truth is this. God is precisely who he says he is. And he proves it again and again and again. And the more we know of the God who is, the more comfort we derive from being in his presence. Regardless of how terrible our circumstances might be, God is the one who can comfort us in them. Psalm 94 says this, Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. If I say my foot slips... Your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. This is because the God who is, is the source of all of our comfort. This is what Paul is pressing here in 2 Corinthians. He is the one who comforts us in all of our tribulation. But I want to draw your attention to something very specific here. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He comforts us, verse 4, in all of our tribulations so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. I want to think about that backwards with you for just a minute. Because the comforts of Christ that we want are the direct descendants of his sufferings. Okay? They are the fruit that comes to us when we participate in his sufferings. This is why Paul says, I'm going to fill up in my body the sufferings of Christ. Not that there was any lacking in Christ's suffering. Not that Christ didn't complete the work. But Paul understood that the more he partook of the sufferings of Christ, the more he would dwell and delight and be filled up with the consolation that comes through it. That's what he's telling us here. 
You see, Jesus owns our suffering and and pours himself into us when we suffer for his name. Now, there are two ways you can suffer for his name in broad strokes. You can suffer directly when you are persecuted for speaking the truth, when you are persecuted for declaring the name of Christ and telling people what actually is instead of what they want to hear. But you can also suffer for the sake of the name indirectly. And you can suffer for the sake of the name indirectly by the sanctification that goes on in you because let's be honest with each other. Being conformed to the image of Christ is often a painful process. It involves things in your life being removed that you have loved for a long time. It involves things in your life being excised by the word of God as the spirit cuts into us with the sword in which he removes our old passions and removes our old loves and removes our old affections and plants in us new ones. The more that process goes on, the more you recognize the sufferings of Christ and how directly they are connected to your own sanctification, the more you participate in his suffering since he died in your place, the more you begin to draw the comfort that comes through them. He abundantly pours out the grace upon his children that his sufferings purchased because he is the fountainhead of the grace of God. But here's the part you cannot miss. The comfort that you are given is not given for you alone. Okay? Paul says, we ourselves give you the comfort that we have received from God. There is a a part of this whole dynamic which says that whatever God brings into your life has the purpose of conforming you to the image of Christ, but it also has the purpose of equipping you for the work of manifesting Christ in the world around you. God is going to use whatever he does in your life in the life of somebody else. But whatever you're enduring, whatever you're facing, whatever thing is going on that if you could have your own way right now, you would remove. Whatever that might be, you need to recognize the biblical truth that God has brought it to you because as he works it out in you, he will be allowing you to become a part of his work in the life of somebody else. You can become a direct minister of the comfort that you have received because now you have something to give. Okay? And this is not about the the wishy-washy humanist, I know what you're feeling. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about actually having God give you something powerful that you become a communicator of in the life of somebody else. Because let's be really honest with each other if we may. Can you ever know what somebody else is feeling? Not a chance. It's it's arrogant of us to presume that we can. We can't know somebody else's feelings because we don't know somebody else's heart. We don't know somebody else's full experience. You don't know how somebody else has processed things, the things that they've gone through that they never told you about. You might think that you can intuit it. 
You might think that you're going to be able to somehow imagine that you can come close, and maybe you can come close. But you see, it will always fall short if it's just the human compassion. The, the, I'm going I'm to come alongside you because I've gone through that same thing. You've gone through something similar. But you haven't gone through that same thing. But when God gets into it, He provides for you exactly what is needful to speak into the life of somebody else, to pour into them what has been given to you. You see, our human philosophies die as soon as they meet the real world. Every idea that has gained ascendancy has been replaced by the next idea. The truth of the matter is this. The only way you can swallow the lies is if you forget the past. What Scripture commends to us is that God says, I will give you what you need. But before I can give you what you need, I must prepare you to be a fit vessel for it. So that thing in your life that right now you're wrestling with, that thing in your life that's looming up about later, that thing in your life that you just walked through, that was designed by God so that you would have something to give somebody else. It was designed by God to prepare you for the work of ministry and to prepare the tool in your hand that he intended you to use. Paul says, I'm comforted by him. Which means that both our comforts and our afflictions are larger than ourselves. Notice what he says. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Notice what he says here. He says this. If we're afflicted in verse 6, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also are suffering. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. What does Paul say? He says, look, it doesn't really matter whether I'm going to escape this momentary trial or not. It doesn't really matter whether I'm going to die here or not die here, whether I'm going to succeed in the endeavor that I'm attempting to do. It doesn't make any difference at all. What matters is that whether I am afflicted or whether I am comforted, it comes out for your comfort and salvation, for your consolation and salvation. In other words, God is big enough to use your trials, your difficulties, or your triumphs to accomplish his ends, which magnificently divorces us from this idea of, oh, I failed so miserably at doing what I was supposed to do. Maybe you failed at your plan, but God's plans never fail. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't often have things to repent of. I know I do. (laughs) But that repentance is also part of his plan. That process by which he changes us continually and causes us to see our sin, it didn't end when you were made new. Right? It didn't end when you called out for mercy. It just began. The old man still dwells in you. He still wants what he wants. He still screams and cries. That's why we're told to crucify him daily. That process of of coming into the like-minded character 
so that we think like God thinks, love what God loves, desire what God desires. That process is ongoing and will continue to go forward until the day that God calls you home. Which means there's going to be a lot of opportunities for repentance. There's going to be a lot of opportunities to cry out, oh God, I messed that up so bad, please forgive me. You know what's wonderful about that? The cry for mercy, the cry for forgiveness is always answered. Yes. Because it's paid for in Christ. And that's part of the comfort. That's part of the consolation. That's part of what it is that God is giving to us in Christ is this majesty, this glorious truth that you can mess up your plans and you can get it so wrong that you look at and you go, there's no way in the world that God could ever be glorified by that. And then all of a sudden, out of the midst of that chaos arises the truth that God not only can be glorified by it, but he set it up to be glorified by it. What was last Sunday? I forget. Easter, that was it, yeah. What was last Saturday? The darkest day in the history of humanity. It was the day when the disciples knew that everything they had believed in was dead and gone and wrong. It was the day that the disciples knew without any question whatsoever that they had just wasted three years of their life following a madman. And then, Sunday. You see, no matter what it is you're facing, it doesn't surprise God. That may surprise you. <laughs> that occasionally surprises me. <laughs> it, it doesn't surprise him. Which means that whatever it is you're in right now, your deliverance has already been prepared. It's already been purchased. And it's already on its way. You just don't know when it's going to arrive. And honestly, that's part of the appeal. Who doesn't love a good surprise? Amen? Who doesn't love it when we step back for just a minute and we look at these things, when God mercifully reveals to us one tiny little slice of the pie and he shows us what he's done in this little way, in this little thing, and we can trace his hand through our tiny little visual perspective of the slightest piece of his plan. And we're so amazed by all the pieces that he put into place to bring this one little thing about. It's pretty cool, right? Now, step back from that for just a second and understand that he has been doing that since before he ever said, let there be. And not just in you, but in all of his creation for all of time and eternity. And if right now your brains aren't in danger of running out your ears, you're not thinking about it. Because it'll turn you to mush, I promise. 
God is that big and he's that glorious. And we get trapped in the thought that our affliction and our difficulty and our trial and our hardship is so bad, nobody's ever faced anything like it before and nobody else can help me and even God can't fix this mess. Fooey. Our God not only can, he already has. You just haven't seen it yet. He hasn't chosen to reveal it to you. But that doesn't make it unreal. You see, part of what God is doing in this process of making us wait and revealing himself in the fullness of time is revealing himself in our lives as we are changed. Think with me for just a minute. Go, go back in time. Tony says, I've been here 25 years. I have been here 25 years in a few months. I remember the first sermon I ever preached in this place. It was a Sunday night, and let me tell you the truth. If I was on the committee deciding whether or not I was going to hire that guy, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> I'm not sure that today's any better, but I promise you I wouldn't have done it that night. I'd have gone, thank you for playing. Go back to Arizona, you loony. Some of you were here. You might remember. <laughs> I do. See, when we look back on what we were and we think about what we are and we contemplate what we are becoming, what shines in the middle of all of it if we're walking with Christ at all is the glorious truth that God has been present through the whole ark. And he never fails. That's so easy for us to lose sight of in that little myopic moment that we get stuck in. And all we can see is this moment. All we can see is this difficulty. All we can see is this trial. But this moment... It's over already. <laughs> think about that sometime. Not right now. It'll, it'll short circuit you. But think about this sometime. Try to pinpoint a moment. Because the moment that you put a pin in it, it's done. It's gone. It's already passed. So this thing that we're stuck in, this temporary thing we look at, we go, right now is such a mess. Well, right now is already over. The next one's on its way, and God is in it already. He is bringing you through the thing that you're in right now, and in the midst of all of it, he's displaying himself. I don't want him to display me. I don't even want anybody to notice me. But I want him to display himself through me. I want every breath that comes out of my body to be to the praise of my God. Maybe someday it will be. <laughs> when I stop breathing. <laughs> you see, part of what God is doing is offering you the opportunity and giving you the equipment to participate with him in the work of the gospel. I believe in missions. I believe in going. I believe in sending. 
I believe Paul Washer has it right when he says, you're either in the well or holding the rope. Either way, show me the scars, okay? I think that's exactly right. But at the same time, I also think it's true that whether you're going or sending or in the middle going, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do, in this moment right now, you can be living a life that declares the praises of your God. And I'll take it one step further. And I'll say that if God is God, you are. Now before we feel all happy and fluffy about it, Understand that Scripture says that God has prepared for himself vessels of wrath fit for destruction. And that if that describes you, you will declare his praises through his wrath. That should terrify you. If you can look at your life right now and say to yourself, there's no evidence of Christ in me at all. There's no mark of him on me. There's no flavor of him in me. There's no scent of him around me. I go to church because my wife makes me, because my husband drags me, because my kids need to be in church. Whatever your reason, if if your answer to everything that you're doing is it's all fake and there's nothing real, then I want to urge you in this moment to deal with your soul and deal with your God. Because the things that are real and the things that are true are real and true. And everybody will declare his praises, willingly or unwillingly, here or there. We will praise his mercy or we will declare the righteousness of his wrath. You see, no matter how you slice this up, God wins. And that is exactly as it should be. Because he's God. You're not. Kim alluded to the book of Job. If you want to get Job in the Cliff Notes version, I can give it to you really simply. Here's the point of the entire book of Job. If you've ever wondered about it, I'm going to write a book. It'll be really short. I'm God. You're not. Deal with it. That's really what Job's about. Well, Job is kind of the big dog in what it is to suffer, except for Christ. (laughs) We look at the life of Job and we think to ourselves, how would anybody endure that? And and at the end, praise God, right? I I get short-circuited when he praises God at the beginning. He's lost everything he owned. His children have been slain. His wife says to him, curse God and die. And he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave. The Lord took away. Blessed be his name. And the scripture goes so far as to affirm that in everything Job said and did, he did not sin with his lips. I look at that and I just close the book and go, I can't do that. Ain't no way. It's not possible for me. And yet, God is God. And he will do with my life exactly as he wishes and exactly as he has ordained. And if he is God, then it is incumbent upon me To not only believe that, 
but praise Him in it. Because whatever it is that we're dealing with, whatever it is that we're facing, His comfort and His affliction that He brings into our lives are both tools to fashion Christ in us. All right, look at me at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll come back to Corinthians in a minute. Tony said you guys go till 2 o'clock, right? Okay. Because that's my first point. <laughs> 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 6. Now in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were now ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call upon the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. What does Peter give us? Peter says, look, you need to understand that whatever you're dealing with right now has been brought into your life in order to manifest Christ. It's been brought into your life to demonstrate the genuineness of your faith. And he gives us this really cool picture. He says, it's, it's much more precious than gold which perishes, though the gold has been refined by fire, Right? So they dig gold out of the ground. It's, it's combined with the ore that, that it's found in and they mechanically crush it up. They strip off the big stuff and then they run it through the fire and they melt it. Over 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit is required to burn off the rock. The gold becomes liquid. They skim off the, the stuff and what's left is pure gold. Now I want you to understand this. This is not singing the praises of gold because we all know what God does with gold. Revelation tells us he paves the streets of heaven with it. So if he goes to that much trouble to refine his asphalt, how much trouble is he going to go to to refine his child? Peter says, look, you need to understand the things that are going on right now, they're demonstrating that your faith is real. And because God loves you and has redeemed you and called you out, you need to live your life with a, the fear of the Lord being the standard mark of everything that you are. And then right in the middle of it, he gives us this remarkable statement. He says, these things, this love of God is something that the angels long to look into. 
right? You say, well, I, I don't quite understand what he means by that. Let me help you out. Do the angels know the will and plan and purpose and person of God? Sure they do. They behold his face every day. They're with him. They see the outworking of his plan. But do they understand it? Do they know it? Do they know it experientially? No, they can't. Because there never has been an angel who has ever been redeemed. And there never will be an angel who has been redeemed. When the angels rebelled, what happened? They were cast out with no hope of redemption ever given. This is why Paul tells us in Romans 3 that God is vindicating himself through the redemption of his people. Because when God cast the angels out of heaven, the right thing, the precedential thing for him to do would have been to have cast Adam and Eve out of his presence without any hope of redemption as well. And when God didn't, they all cried out, unfair. Unfair, God, you are unjust. And Paul says that in the death of Jesus, God is vindicating himself because in his forbearance, he had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Paul says God vindicates himself. Peter says the angels get that in some degree. And there is not an angel in heaven who wouldn't willingly trade places with you right now. Because they long to know what it is to be redeemed. So that thing that you're experiencing, that burden that you're wishing you could be rid of, it is the envy of the angels. Because it is the tool by which you come into the experiential knowledge of the God who is. And that knowledge is worth the death of Jesus. Don't miss this. Because God made a world intending it to fall that his people could be presented redeemed so that we could know the best parts of him. And part of that entire package is this thing that you're experiencing right now. Part of that entire package is this pain that you're trying to avoid. Part of that entire package is that thing that you want to be rid of. Beloved, hear me. Your God is still God. And he is never wrong in anything that he does. And he is never wrong in anything that he gives. That suffering, that pain, that sorrow, that anguish. It is a precious gift given to you by the hand of a loving father to prepare you for glory you cannot comprehend. Embrace it. Give thanks for it. Honor the Father who loved you enough to give it. Honor the Son who loved you enough to be the vehicle by which it could be given to you. Honor the God who says that knowing me is worth any price because I'm that good. Right? Now, if a man ever says that to you, turn around and walk away. But when God says that, 
Step back and take notice because immediately we react against that kind of language, right? Part of us goes, oh, that's so arrogant. Not if it's true. Amen? And if we can look at God and think to ourselves, God would never say that that pain you're suffering is worth it because through it you get to know me. My God would never say that. Then your God is not the God who is. And the one that you're stuck with is way too small and nowhere near good enough. Amen? The God who is, is worth the loss of all things. What did Paul write in Philippians? We read it this morning. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. I don't know whether I'm going to stay or go. It's better for me if I go. It's better for you if I stay. See, all of this is wrapped up in a perspective, not about your suffering, but about your God. And all too often we get short-circuited in our suffering because we lose sight of our God in the midst of our pain. We lose sight of what actually is because we get focused on that fleeting passing moment. Remember I talked about the moment that's already gone before it's here? That pain, that thing that you're experiencing, it's gone in the moment that it comes and it's nothing but a memory, but we get stuck on it. But when we fix our eyes on God, on the one who is, beloved, he is eternal. He is unchanging. He is the same God forever and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the scripture tells us. And when we fix our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, when we fix our eyes on him, then suddenly the things that we felt about our suffering, they seem very, very minor. So much so that I can't even remember what that was that I was so worked up about. In the end, the comfort and the affliction that you have from God are both tools in his hand that allow you to know him. They are tools in his hand that allow you to glorify him. They are tools in your hand, in his hand, that allow you to learn to trust him. And they are tools in his hand that demonstrate not only to you, but to the heavenlies that are watching, according to Ephesians chapter 3, the wisdom and the plan and the purpose of our God. Paul says that no matter what's going on, God is displaying the wisdom of his plan in the heavenly places as Christ is formed in his people. Just think about that for a minute. Chew on that. That thing that you wish you could be rid of? As Christ is formed in you through it, God is being displayed and vindicated in the heavenly places. You say, but nobody's watching. Nobody's with me. Do you think anybody needs to be for God to be displayed in the heavenlies? Do you think that you need a human audience? Do you think that you need a human applause? You fix your eyes on Christ. 
You delight in the God who made you. You give yourself to him. And what you find is that in the midst of all of it, everything begins to display him, which means that the comfort we long for is meaningless in the absence of affliction. Right? You ever think about that? The thing that you want is comfort. The thing that you want is is to be relieved and to be held and to be loved in that way. But it means nothing in the absence of affliction. It means nothing when there's nothing to be comforted for. Amen? So we look at the world around us and we look at the scope of things and we think to ourselves that everything that is is designed by God to display himself on a global scale and on a personal scale. Whether we're talking about the rise and fall of nations or whether we're talking about how God gives himself evidence in the midst of this life. Whether we're talking about you pouring yourself into the life of one person through the comfort that's been given to you, or whether we're talking about God moving on a global stage, it's still the same God doing the same work. But here's the truth. If, if you struggle at the personal level to translate your suffering into the presence of God, It's really difficult to conceive of you being used in a larger scope. Now, God's God. I tried to say that carefully. Sometimes we run into things with our Calvinism that we don't quite know how to get around. So I I try to say that carefully. It's, It's hard for me to conceive. But I know this. I know that when God gives us his revealed will and his word, it's the best course of action for us to take it. Right? It, it's best for us to do what God says. If you are hard-headed and determined and, and stubborn-willed like I am, then you will often go astray of what God says to do and you will be corrected by that rod and staff that we mentioned earlier. And it's painful. But if you are a person who can learn from being taught, then I would challenge you to consider whatever that thing is. And I I don't need to know what it is to know that this is true. I would challenge you to consider that whatever that thing is, it is a gift from God which has been given to you for the purpose of displaying Christ. I would challenge you to consider that whatever that trial might be, whatever that sorrow or hardship, whatever that difficulty, that pain, that loss, understand that it is a gift from the God who loves you. And that through that thing, You're going to learn to know him experientially in ways you could not have known him without it. Which is the exact point that the angels are jealous of. 
the wonder of it is that it works whether you're his already or whether you're not. If you're his, it works in the character of Christ being conformed in you. And you sift down through all of the noise and all of the chaos and you come to the point where you recognize that at the end of it all, only God is worth anything. And if you're not his, it sifts through all the noise and all the chaos and it boils down to the place where you begin to recognize that only God is worth anything. Because I promise you this, There is nothing else in the world that can ever do what God delivers all the time. There is no other hope. There is no other comfort. There is no other power. There is no other truth. In the end, what Paul says is this. I'm grateful for my afflictions. And I'm grateful for my afflictions because what God did in them was make them so great. And I love this verse. Made them so great and so huge that I despaired even of life so that my faith would be in the God who raises the dead. Do you understand how horrible things have to be to actually look at your circumstances and say, I'm despairing of life for myself, perhaps, or I'm despairing of life for my circumstances, I'm despairing of life for my marriage, I'm despairing of life for my my relationship with this person, I'm despairing of it, it's dead to me. And what the scripture says and what Paul commends to us is to adopt an attitude whereby we look at this and say, you know what? God brought it to this point so that my faith and my hope would not be in myself, not in my human efforts, not in my humanitarian crisis, but in the God who raises the dead. Because the God who raises the dead is the same God that raised Jesus. And he's still in business, beloved. He's still doing what he does and he's never changed and he never will. So whatever it is that you're facing, if it is not yet to the point where you are despairing of its life, buckle up. Because it just might get worse before it gets better. Or recognize the truth that your God can raise the dead. And put your faith in him. You have before you life and death. You have before you. The only thing. That stands beyond this life. And that is God. I would urge you. I would commend you. I would beg you. Do not give this life to anything less than the God who raises the dead. Because nothing else will ever accomplish anything worth having. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this moment. And I pray, God, that as we struggle with difficulties in our lives, that you would remind us that you have given them to us 
for the purpose of displaying yourself. And I pray, God, that you would help us to walk faithfully in this moment and in this trial so that our lives and our wills and our hopes, that our everything, God, would reflect you. God, I pray for those in this place. I pray, God, that truth would be planted. I pray, God, that anything I might have said that is not true would be dropped into the depths of the ocean, Father, stripped away. But let every word of truth bear fruit. We ask it in Jesus' name.